Welcome to the Story Engine. I'm Tristan Verboven. I'm about to tell you a story about the ongoing battle between light and darkness. This is part one of a three-part series about Hannibal and the fight for big water. At the eastern reaches of Big Water, a band of armed horsemen stops in front of a modest stone house. Two of them, bearing the silver badge of a marshal, dismount and open the door in a manner unaccustomed to resistance. Before them, on a bed, is an old man clothed in faded finery of exotic beaded pattern. His face is reddish, dark, bearded and scarred with a missing eye. He has the lines of a man who has smiled little in life and in his dead hands a note addressed simply to my assassins. Could this really be him? scoffs one of the horsemen. From all I've heard, I was expecting a giant. The other horseman reads the note. I've spared you the trouble of killing me yourself. Since you are too impatient to await an old man's death. Hard to believe, the horseman continues. That's the one they call the Barca. Hard to believe. That's the same one who watched as my father and his two brothers drowned in a lake of their own blood. Same one who gave me nightmares as a child for fear he and his band of painted savages come in my house at night to ravage us. The other horseman places the letter in a pouch and draws a large knife to remove the old man's head. Nobody's going to recognize him looking like that says the horseman, grabbing his hand. This is a man they say, where other men had arms, he had a horde of brave warriors, and where other men had legs, he had a herd of war horses, and his feet shook the ground like the hooves of an elephant. Not some old, wrinkled-up corpse. You should take that ring instead. His hand bears a magnificent band, a secret compartment that once held the dose of poison is carved in the form of a shark, set in an inlay pattern of warships gilded in gold. With the cold blood fit for the task, he places the ring and finger in the pouch, leaving the body where it lay. I reckon that's the last we're gonna see of these brutes, 
says the horseman as they begin their long journey home. The last rebel Cartha, finally dead. All those years on the run, all those men killed trying to stop him. And then he just goes and kills himself with poison. It just doesn't make any sense. I guess he knew he had it coming. Oh, he had it coming all right, says the other horseman. We all have it coming. And as they ride home to deliver their pouch, there lay the last Kartha warrior who ever set foot in seven hills. Make no mistake, dear listener, the old man who lay there was once the most powerful and dangerous man in the world. And he did indeed shake the earth under the hooves of elephants. And he had at the crook of his finger the wrath of a horde of villainous raiders. And he taught a dear lesson to our forefathers, a lesson about the resolve of a single man, the weakness of an entire nation, and the nature of true power. There's a reason why we know almost nothing about the Carthaginians. We know a little. We know that they once lived at the far side of big water within a great walled enclosure and that they were craftsmen, shipbuilders and weavers. But most of all, they were merchants, traders of the commodities of life, be it spices from the Eastern tribes or grain from the West their blood flowed with gold and silver. We also know that they draped their dark complexions in bead and decorative marks, and that their gods, in exchange for safety and wealth, asked of them the strangest afflictions. Ghastly ceremonies with human sacrifice, debilitating taboos, condemning them to a man of an incurable fear of land. Yes, these were a people who lived solely upon the water, save perhaps when they moored their boats at port to come ashore, beyond the southern banks of Cartha, where they harbored, lay a vast desert. They lived somewhere between heaven and hell, on the thin strip of green that divided the rich bounty of water with the desolate emptiness of the fruitless parched horizon. No Cartha had ever wandered beyond the sight of water. Their gaze always upon the tides and currents that kept away the forces of darkness. Big water was their land their god and their harvest. They could live no place else but to have a boat beneath their feet and the currents to return them home to the safety and splendor of the walls of Cartha. But we know nothing else, dear listener, for there is nothing left of this great people. 
only what has been later sifted from ashes, ashes of such a fine powder that we can only imagine the heat with which it consumed an entire civilization. A fire so vast, so ferocious, that it is said to have burned for weeks, only to be lit again, to burn for more, until there was not a single vestige nor legend told, except those of its conqueror. When the first pale-skinned settlers came to the north shore among the seven hills, they had no quarrel with the Cartha. In the same way that the Cartha had no need for land beyond what they could see from the water, the people of seven hills would scarcely venture to the waters past where they could see the safety of land. Yes, land was what seven hills hungered for, Always more land. In the same way that the Cartha piloted the tides, the people of Seven Hills were masters of the earth. Their tools could reap harvests, move rivers, mine beneath mountains, cut roads through marsh and forest alike, and from stone they cut magnificent structures. And for every tool, there was a weapon, too. For the light of seven hills to spread, it had to shine into the darkness. And in that darkness they found strange tribes, speaking strange languages, with peculiar weapons and ways. But seven hills' hunger for land was so strong that those tribes could all but join or die under their providence. Seven Hills' lust for land was matched only by their love of power. Every man knew from childhood that the day would come for them to take up arms against a murderous foe. It was their way. To shed light into the gloom, to plow rough lands by force, to drive lines into chaos, to tame the wild with tools. Peace was fashioned by the hammer and the blade. But as long as Cartha did not live on the land and Seven Hills did not travel the seas, there would be no wrangle between them. Nor would there be a story, my dear listener. But sadly, there is a story to be told. How long can two great nations live on big water without their differences? Our story begins on Sickle Island. Directly between the shores of Seven Hills and the walls of Cartha, since long before the pale-faced people ever settled Seven Hills, the Cartha have used the island as a trading port. 
The harbour is in the capable hands of an elder Cartha named Hamilcar. With his three sons, he dispatches the trade boats that sail big water and brings great wealth to his family. His name is spoken far and wide and has become known as the Barca, the Cartha word for thunder. To protect their wealth, the Barca keeps a band of guards, men retained from neighboring tribes. The Cartha are not warriors, not on the land at least. They keep their strength in the water. Hamilcar Barca knows of his neighbors in Seven Hills. He trades with them, but thinks little of them. Cartha warboats dominate big water, and Seven Hills, with their terrible fear of water, would think twice before shedding their light into Sickle Island. But as Seven Hills hunger for land grows, the strait of water that separates them from Sickle Island seems to get smaller. In fact, on a clear day, you can see it on the horizon. It is exactly such a clear day when two men, Gus Cattle and Quinton Falter, look across that very strait from Seven Hills and hatch a plan that will change the world forever. You can practically touch it with your hands, says Gus, lost in his gaze. We own the lands a hundred miles in every direction, but we can't cross five miles of water. That's five miles of Cartha water, replies Quinton. You launch as much of the rowboat in that water, and they'll swarm you. There must be a way says Gus. I've been watching their boats for years, says Quinton. They sail by wind or paddle, in any weather, and they're fast. They can maneuver as if they were riding a horse. And what if we had our own boats, wonders Gus. How hard can it be to cross five miles of water and bring the fight to them? Fighting on the water is not the same as fighting on the land, says Quinton. Their boats have sharp spikes at the bow. They ram their enemies by the flank without even raising a single weapon. That's how they rule big water without an army to speak of. They rule big water because nobody dares challenge them, says Gus. We need to fight them on the water the way we fight on the land. Quinton smiles at this plan. If they can build boats to carry men and then storm the Cartha boats before they're rammed, Sickle Island is theirs for the taking. It seems like a pipe dream at first, but the inhabitants of Seven Hills are not the descendants of fearful men. In Seven Hills, fortune favors the brazen. Their fortunes are made by those who brave the unknown. And before long, the shores of Seven Hills are littered with these war boats, the spitting image of those sailed by the Cartha. Only these boats are filled with the boldest of Seven Hills fighting men. 
Hamilcar and his sons, at the sight of this force upon their own shores, flee helplessly to the great hill at the center of Sickle Island. Unable to fight back, they yield to seven hills. In exchange for their lives, and for peace between Cartha and Seven Hills, Hamilcar Barca and his sons are banished to the western reaches of Big Water, and they agree never to sail Big Water again. Years pass until one day on the far western shores of Big Water the exiled Hamilcar, gray and broken, lays in waste. His sons and loyal servants in bedside vigil. His grief has gripped him to despair, leaving him stricken with illness and malaise. But as he slowly expires, his three sons are called to his side. He has one last thing to settle. Come closer, my sons, for I have no more strength. They do as their father says. As I die, there is only time for the truth. So I will leave you with it. We are listening, Father. I have been a failure. I have failed my people. I have failed my gods. I have failed my family. But you will not, my sons, if you heed these words. Tell me, Father, he locks his eyes with his oldest son in a deeply affected glare. Make no peace with the people of Seven Hills. They will keep none of their promises. They know nothing of peace. They only know slavery and war. They have taken our seas, our livelihood what they have left us they will take it too they must be destroyed Hamilcar his hand shaking takes a magnificent ring from his finger and places it upon the finger of his son you are the Barker now and if you wish not to see your people and yourself a slave, there is only one way. Avenge Cartha. They will only answer to blood. You will take it from them. But how, father? They've taken our boats, 
Our gods cannot protect us. The people of Seven Hills once feared Big Water. But they learned our ways and bested us. They fought on the water the way they fight on the land. You can learn their ways too, my son. Learn to fight on the land. Raise an army of their enemies. Fight on the land as we did on the waters. You need not fear your gods. They have long abandoned us. You have only the gods of Seven Hills to fear now. And Seven Hills will only fear one thing. You, my son. Hannibal Barker. You and your brothers will avenge Cartha. Promise me this before I die. Promise! Promise! You are feverish, father. Please, rest a while. There is no time! Take an oath now! Take an oath that you will avenge Cartha! Vow it! Vow it so I may die! I vow it, father. Cartha will be avenged. Good. Good. Never let them choose the terms. Never let them choose the field. And never fight them in Cartha. You must take the fight to them. Cartha and Seven Hills cannot live together. This will only end in... As Hamilcar gasps his final words, his hand tightens, but struggles no more. Hannibal is now the Barca, and with this honor comes a ghastly oath to take vengeance upon a murderous and powerful enemy with an army he does not yet have. In the enemy's own lair, away from shelter of the waters, it will mean months of journey, crossing mountain passes, cursed land with all its demons, to deliver his people from slavery. So heavy is the pain in his heart as he slowly releases his father's twisted hand. All the hatred of a people, their humiliation, their wrath, burn a gloom over his brow. He looks down at the ring and turns it on his finger. And from that moment, his eyes never again betray anything but the darkest of gravity. The fury gives him new life. Hannibal and his brothers devote their lives to learning the art of war. They travel among the tribes of Big Water to study their fighting styles. From the Numidians, they learn the methods of the finest lanced horsemen. From the Iberians, they learn the craft of the foot soldier. And from the Balearics, who as children 
harvested fruit from the trees with slings. They learned the devastating power of the missile. And in return, the warriors of these tribes find inspiration. They too feel a dread from the ever-growing Seven Hills. And in Hannibal, they see hope. Before long, the warriors of these tribes make their way to the western reaches of Big Water. And the once helpless, fearful, and unarmed Barca finds himself at the helm of a great fighting force, fueled by vengeance and the combined elite force of the tribes of Big Water. He may now carry out his promise to his father and his people. Standing before his men, flanked by his brothers Mago and Hasdrubal, his voice fills the air like thunder. How much longer can we stand by while Seven Hills hungers for our lands? Can you not feel the winds changing? We are that wind, and together we have the power to defy them. I will march upon Seven Hills. If there are any among you who do not give their lives to exacting this same vengeance, leave us now. I do not fault you. This journey will require of you the utmost loyalty, bravery, and resolve. And if you do not have it to give, I have no place for you in my ranks. And then he speaks again. Those of you who follow, you will march tirelessly to the ends of the earth. You will have no life but that of misery and violence. You will fight a strong and fearless enemy, and most likely, you will die in a murderous battle. But I will take you to the very heart of Seven Hills, and there you will have vengeance, and your people will be spared eternal slavery. Are you with me? Are you with me? And so the march begins. The long journey into the light. The long journey to settle the fate of big water. With a fire that burns deep in the soul. Powered by the dark embers of hate and revenge. To stop an unstoppable force and right an indelible wrong. And yes, dear listener, to unleash a river of blood deeper and redder than has ever been seen before.
so we leave Hannibal and his warriors as they make their way east. And without boats, it is a long, treacherous march. When we return in part two, word will have reached Seven Hills, and we shall be witness to one of the greatest conflicts in the history of the world. I'm Tristan Verboven, and you're listening to The Story Engine. Please check out our website by clicking the link and let us know where you're listening. We'd love to hear from you, so leave us your comments. In the meantime, stay tuned and make sure to download this and other episodes.